As Christians, we are convinced that God exists and that he's given unmistakable evidence for his existence. But we've had to be persuaded of that. And the section we're going to be reading together in Exodus 19 today, as we continue our our Exodus series, is God giving evidence of his existence in unmistakable fashion to Israel, the nation that he has already rescued from the slavery of Egypt. They'd already seen remarkable things. But just like us, they have a tendency and had a tendency to get caught up with the things of this life, the things of the created order, and take their eyes off the creator himself. So God, in bringing a people to himself, as we were thinking in our previous session, for a purpose that he might be glorified in having a people that he has saved for himself and for his glory, he has a purpose for them, which we're getting to is that they might be a worshipping people. Today we'll see in our text that God has to manifest himself to his people so that they absolutely are convinced of who he is. And that then shapes their life and their service. Read with me in Exodus chapter 19 then please. Exodus 19 and verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down in Mount Sinai, in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments and he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. 
But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. The awesome God meets with his people. God has redeemed his people for a purpose. He has rescued them from Egypt that they might worship and serve him. Exodus 19 verse 4. Ian took us there last week. I bore you an eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That's the wonderful truth of who our God is. That he works to bring a people to himself. And he has done that with us as well as believers in the Lord Jesus. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That is the whole purpose of salvation, that we might be brought to God. Now that's a bringing to God that is guaranteed for eternity because we have a a home with God that is ours for eternity in Christ. That's assured. But it's also that we might be brought to God now. Personally, that we might know an intimate relationship with God, but also together as his people, that we might approach God in the way that he says we should, to worship. That's what we're getting at here as we follow through with the people of Israel in their Exodus journey. God wants to get up close and personal with them. He, he's done that already in a sense. They've seen what he has done in in the various plagues of Egypt and how they've been brought through the Red Sea. They've seen God at work. But now God wants to make himself unmistakably known to them because he's going to appear to them. Now this is the precursor for God giving them the terms of the covenant. Remember last week Ian spoke about God being a covenant-making God who had brought his people out that he might enter into an arrangement with them, an agreement, a mutually binding, a mutually benefiting agreement, covenant, that he would be glorified in them and they would rejoice in being God's people and enjoy all the good of being God's people. But he didn't specify the terms of the covenant. Now God has all the authority in this, of course, to dictate the terms, because God is God. And We are not. So in this situation, God has expressed to Moses, who must have gone to the top of the mountain uh, to meet with God by this point, because he goes back down to to say it to the people. You'll notice in just this short opening section, 1 to 25, Moses goes up and down the mountain three times. He was a fit man. But he comes down and he says, God wants you to be his people, a covenant people, a kingdom for him, a holy nation. And the response we've read was, all the Lord has said we will do. The Lord has yet to give his law and the conditions of the covenant. So maybe the people were, were quite keen to say yes. We're going to get to the law next week in God's will. But here is God doing something important first. And we know how this works in everyday life. If somebody is going to make an agreement with us or going to give us their word... We need to know the person first. If somebody makes an agreement with you and you've never met them and they make all sorts of promises to you, you're sceptical, aren't you? We're sceptical with insurance companies sometimes unless we see that they have good ratings and we know something about them. Here we have God making himself known so that his attributes and his character 
are sitting alongside the things that he says. We often say a man is his word. That the word of a person and the promises that someone might make to somebody else are only as good as the person who's making them. We can make all sorts of promises and this world is full of promises. But being people that we are, we break promises because we're unreliable and changing people. Circumstances come in and affect us. So trust is a thing that has to be earned. God has manifested himself already to Israel, but he's going to do something very special before he speaks his word to them. And I think it's because there was something, we're going to develop this a little bit, there was something about Moses here was maybe seen as a little bit of a celebrity because he was the one who had this connection with this God and he was the one who kept coming with the words from this God. A little bit of scepticism. Is this Moses or is this something else? But God is going to make himself known. And before he would give the Ten Commandments, which is a summary of the 613 laws that governed the nation of Israel in their lives, he had to reveal himself to them unmistakably. And that's what we've read. He comes that they might know him. And it's a fearful thing. Do you notice that it's frightening? The people tremble. The people are warned by Moses, uh, who's come with the message from God, look, you, you just don't run up to this mountain. You make yourselves ready. You approach this God when he comes to you with the reverence that he deserves because he is holy. But we see in it too that he is his love. God is holy and God is love. <coughs> Always. But his holiness demands reverence because we as sinners are under his judgment and his love at the same time means that he would bring us to himself and today that's through faith in Christ Jesus. So here is God revealing himself before he gives the terms of the covenant. So it's knowing the person before we enter into the agreement with them. Here is God showing himself before the people will rightly say, yes, all that the Lord has said we will do. I find this a, an intriguing um, situation. The chapter's running up to this as well, and particularly chapter 19, that God, the Almighty, the unmistakable, uncreated one, the one who made everything, has been guiding his people. He's been in charge. In his sovereignty, he's been doing everything. He has guided his people in his time to this very place, which is Sinai, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb has two names. Now, this is a place that's familiar to Moses. We've been here much earlier in our series that Moses, when he was a shepherd in Midian, he went to the mountain of God, it says in Exodus 3 and verse 1. It says, Moses came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And I suggest to you that at that time it was already known as a mountain of God. And he came to that place and there God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush that was not consumed. Moses had come, in a sense, face to face with God. And then God spoke to him. And that transformed Moses' life. The same thing, in a sense, is going to happen now for the people that God has brought out. In his timing, according to his power and his sovereign ruling over all of the created order, which is a day-to-day -day 
moment-by-moment miracle. God has the understanding to know that every little thing that happens has a cause and an effect. And he's in control of it all. That's amazing. So God has brought his people to this point, And as he'd done with Moses, he was going to do with the people. At the mountain of God, he was going to show himself. Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, I, I'm persuaded it was a, a sacred site. It was a sacred site, maybe, in the worship of the moon god, Sin. Sinai, Sinai. When Abraham was called out of Mesopotamia, he would be the one through whom God would begin his great purposes for Israel. He was originally an Ur of the Chaldees, which was the center of the worship of Sin, the moon god. The symbol was a, a calf because he was seen to ride on a, on a bull. And a crescent moon was also the symbol. We see a lot of crescent moons on flags today. We're not going there just now. He moved with his family and his father to Haran as they were supposedly making their way to Canaan and they stopped at Haran. Haran was another major centre for the worship of the moon god, Sin. There's a temple there, or was a temple there that was supposed to be the place of the joy of the moon god, Sin. It's interesting that we go back that far to Genesis 12 and we see God stepping in to a situation that was in Mesopotamia at the time, a place that was rife with all of these imagined gods. And there were some that had special significance, particularly the moon god Sin. And usually it was high places that were associated with his worship. Mountains were associated with worship. Other evidence would say to us that in southern Arabia, that the mountains there were also places where the people would gather to worship the moon god Sin. Where are we in this? We're in that area. If you want to follow that little study through yourselves, notice that when Jacob, he has to leave Canaan, he goes to stay with family members, in a sense, extended family. He goes to Laban. Where's Laban? He's back in Haran. There were people who were consumed with the worship of man's creation. Figments of imagination. They were gods. And the gods were revered as living in the mountains. That's there. When you look through the Psalms and some of the other writings of the Old Testament, we see this repeatedly coming through, that mountains were high places. In the history of Israel... You have kings who are listed as whether they were good or whether they weren't good in the way that they honoured God. The good ones usually were associated with removing the high places from Israel. Josiah in particular, he removed all the high places and he gets um, great credit for that from God for doing it. It shows you that the people of Israel were still consumed with the worship of other deities on high places associated with that. You go to Sam, just as an example, Sam 68, verses 15 and 16. It says, O mountain of God, the mountain of Bashan, O many peak mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many peak mountain, at the mountain that God desired for his abode? 
In the Psalm 121 verse 1 that many of us know and have memorised, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? It's not from the gods who are supposedly living in the hills and in the mountains. Psalmist goes on, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's lifting our eyes above to the one who makes himself known in this mess of man's own imaginings of these gods. So God has brought his people in his time to this place, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, that I suggest could well have already been a sacred site in the worship of the moon god sin. The Old Testament is real life. It's not made up stories. It shows us that the setting of the populations of the people of the world in the Near East at that time was just awash with the pantheon of pagan gods, revered and seen to be doing certain things. And you see the battles that ensue. Let me just point you back to Exodus 17 quickly. This is for your further study as well. The Amalekites, why would the Amalekites be in what is supposedly a remote area to come up against this new group that has moved to this mountain. Why would they come and battle with them? I suggest to you because the Amalekites were those who were engaged in the worship of the moon god Sin. And suddenly this group of people comes in and pushes in on their side. Take it away and think about it. The evidence seems to stack up. But I want to say something else. Look at the description we have in Exodus 19. When God makes himself unmistakably known. And I, I believe he's making himself known in his control over the created natural order. He does it all the time. But because it just runs normally, very often we don't pay any attention. But when things happen in a particular way that seem to stretch, in a sense, the things that we would expect naturally to occur... Then God is saying, look, I'm upholding all of this. I've got it. Exodus 19. It's a fearful sight. God has brought this people to a mountain that has a definable boundary that's put in place. God has said, look, I'm going to come down. So you're going to put a boundary. And if anybody crosses that boundary, they get stoned or they get shot through. You don't touch that person. You just deal with them. And when Moses went up to God, the first thing it seems that God says after that instruction had been given, he says, go back down and tell them the same thing again. Moses must have been thinking, well, I've already told them, but he goes back down and he does it. It's because God is holy. God is going to show himself as being the true and the living God. He's no pagan deity. He is no figment of the imagination, moon god, that supposedly dwells on the mountain. He is the god who is above the mountain and he's going to come down. It's got a definable boundary. Not a lot of mountains have definable boundaries. Unless they're volcanoes. Look at the description. Set a boundary, verse 12, around it. If you think about active volcanoes, and you've seen pictures, you will have a cone 
and it has a definable boundary. And usually there's table land associated with it and such like. And those lands that are surrounding the volcanoes are fertile, sustaining a group of people like the Israelites for 11 to 12 months. Where did they get all of their supplies? And so on from. From the fertile regions around it. Yes, I'm a geographer. Let me go with this. And I hope you will see in this that I'm not seeking to rationalise what is maybe considered miraculous in the sense that it's absolute miracle, but it is miraculous. And I think even more so because it shows us that God has brought the people to the place right at the right time. And he is going to show that he's in it all. That for me makes the scriptures as living as they are. Look at the description. A thick cloud in the mountain. Go and look at any images that you would see of active volcanoes. Not necessarily in the, the violence of their absolute eruptions, but in the run-up to that. It's dark. There's big clouds. Thick cloud on the mountain, and God said he would come in that. There's thunder and lightning. The supercharged particles that comprise those clouds mean often there's, there's lightning and thunder. You might be getting uncomfortable and thinking I'm rationalising this, but go with me, please. The very loud trumpet blast. We know that when gas is under pressure and is let out, it makes a noise. It's reported repeatedly, even as far back as antiquity. Dio Cassius reported, he's a Roman historian, reported the sound of trumpets heard coming from the from the volcano at Vesuvius during its eruption. It's wrapped in smoke. The smoke went up like a kiln. There's fire. Of course there is. And there's earthquake. I suggest to you that those seven features look like and describe to us a volcano. And God's in it all. I am not rationalising the, the things of science to try and make us understand God. But the description, if we take the description, does it not point us to that? But God says that he's over it and he's coming down into it. And he has brought the people in this moment to this place to say, look, I'm over all of this. The moon god couldn't do this. The moon god's parents couldn't do this. None of the other pagan deities could ever do this. But I'm coming and I'm going to speak with you. That's the difference. Nobody has ever heard a pagan god speak. If they have, then they claim to have. In this, we have this, um, I mentioned it before, maybe this celebrity, Moses, who's the mouthpiece for this god to the people of Israel. That's not enough. Yes, he's been the most mouthpiece, but now God himself is going to speak and the people are all going to hear it. That's unheard of in pagan idolatry. That a people together at one time would all hear the words of the Lord. And that's what he does. They arrive on the third new moon after leaving Egypt, it told us in verse 1 of chapter 19. That's considered one of the high days. In the worship of the moon god sin. But God is going to step into that. 
which is a thing of the creation of men's um, thinking, he's going to step in and transform it and say, don't get caught up with the things that I've made. Look at me and serve me. And he says exactly the same thing to us today. Whether we're a Christian or not, we have things in our lives that have high places in our lives and we give them respect and we go after them and they will help us through life. You know what I'm getting at with that? The things that we look to and people that we look to and they're things of this creation but God steps into it and says, I'm above it all. Don't trust in that, trust in me. And this is how you are to live. So God is in absolute control here and he's bringing them to it. I want to say this. I'm going to read what I, what I wrote in my notes because th this is maybe a little sensitive. If you think I'm minimizing or diminishing the miracles in attempts to rationalize them, I'm not. Rather, I'm trying to express the astonishment of seeing that God is in control of the moment-by-moment -moment miracle of the natural processes that he would achieve his purposes. We see that too in the person of Jesus Christ. He was in absolute control, moment by moment, God was, of everything that was happening to the point when Jesus was taken and crucified. The apostles knew that when they preached of it. They said, that yes, Herod and Pilate and the Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus, but they also said that the sovereign Lord was behind it all. That's what we have to see when God makes himself known to us. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4, please. My point I'm getting to is the awesome God steps in to make himself known into the mess and the confusion of such religious observance of things that are associated with the earth or imaginings that are associated beyond it, but he's, he's way above it and he comes in. Deuteronomy 4, at the end of their journeys, Moses is standing and speaking to the generation about to go into the promised land. Read with me, if you would, from verse 10. He says, How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of the heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant when he commanded you to perform what he commanded you to form. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on tablets of stone. Go down to verse 32, just for one more verse. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Here's Moses at the end of their journeys and he says, your experience 
in being brought out of Egypt and standing at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, when God made himself known by speaking his voice. No other God has ever done that because no other God exists. Moses was convinced and the people were convinced for a while. I'm not sure if we're going to get to it in our series just now, but it wasn't long after this that the people fell back. Moses had gone up the mountain for 40 days and they fell back into their old ways. What was it that they, they created to worship at the foot of this mountain? Golden calf. We're so quick, aren't we, to go back to the things. Maybe we've been brought up with in the thinking that this world would force on us. But God says in his word that he has spoken to his people. Hebrews chapter 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. God has spoken unmistakably in the person of Jesus to lift us from the things associated with this world so that we might live for him and for his glory. God has come down. He said he would come down and he did. They saw no form, but in the the frightening experience of standing, I suggest, at this volcano, which was in partial uh, eruption. They're standing there frightened. Actually says in Hebrews 12, I think it is, that Moses was fearful for his life in the experience. God has come down. How do we know it? It's because he's spoken. And the people would hear what God says. And that's what we're going to get to next week. What is the point in all this? God is holy. He is so far removed from us that he is beyond our categories. But he's there. And he shows himself in everything that happens at every moment. Even though it just happens and sometimes we're guilty of just thinking it happens. But he's over it all. God is awesome. And... The purpose of Exodus 19 in the scriptures was to remind us that when God does make himself known, he deserves all the reverence because there is none else like him. You don't come near people. What were they told to do? Don't come within this boundary. And you consecrate yourselves. What does that mean? It says you, you, you look at yourselves and see where you're not holy. They were told to wash their garments. I mean, that's an external thing. But at the same time, they're told to wait until the third day. So they're thinking, okay, we don't do anything. And by the way, the, the comment about not touching a woman w was meaning that, look, you give first thinking in all things to what God is doing. You, you, you just pull back from the things that you want to carry on with. It's not as a, any problem with touching a woman. But in this context, you give all of your attention to being right before God comes down and before God speaks. There's a need for that in us, true reverence and fear. And if we're going to be called to approach God, we come to him knowing that our God is a consuming fire. It's the end of Hebrews 12, verse 29. It's no rush job. Sometimes that can take us quite a while before God to see those things that are not right before him but to see that in the saviour that he has provided Christ when he died on the cross for us has died for our sin that we might be cleansed that's the joy of 1 John 1 in those verses 7 through 9 and 10 
that speaks there that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's for the believer. We know the forgiveness of God because Christ died for us, but we lay hold every day so that we might have this closeness with the God who is there and who speaks to us unmistakably that we might have the relationship with him through the continual cleansing moment by moment that comes to us through the cross. Jesus said this about revering God. Matthew 10 verse 28, he was telling his followers, he says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's speaking of our God. He demands all respect, all reverence because of who he is. But we see the God of holiness in all of his holiness and we see the God of love. And it comes together here. We were there last week, God wanting to make this loving covenant. It's like a marriage covenant with this people, that they would be his people and they would enjoy him. The love is there. His holiness is there. On the basis of God's own working, would that come around? Same thing today for us through Christ. To finish, let's read Hebrews 12, some of that. Hebrews 12. For me, seeing Exodus 19 as the reality of a physical setting that God is sovereignly in control of in his timings, and his knowledge over the physical order for me heightens my joy in this text that we're going to read. The book of Hebrews is, is a reminder to the people of God today of the high privilege that we have to appear before God in his holy presence in spirit. Hebrews 10 takes us there. We don't have time to develop it but Hebrews 12 goes further and tells us what the people of God today gathered in service together According to God's instructions, which we'll get to next week. According to God's instructions, serving him for his glory. They have the privilege of entering heaven. God has come and God has spoken. And he says, you come to me now, according to what I say. But Hebrews 12, the writer there takes us. And he contrasts what was the experience for the people of God at Sinai. And what our experience today spiritually is. And it shows the contrast between that which is physical and therefore passing away and that which is spiritual and will be unending because it's eternal in God for us. Read with me from uh, verse 18. Hebrews 12 verse 18. For you, Christians and churches of God serving God together, for you have not come to what may be touched. Blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, here it is, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now that is dense in its brilliance. 
But the simple point I'd like us to see is that the real and physical experience of Israel at Sinai in all of its fearfulness is God would come down and manifest himself in the things that he said, the voice that was heard. It's a thing of the past. God has spoken to us in these last days in his son. It's a thing of the past, but it brings us into the reality of this forever by faith. You haven't come to that which you can touch and which is fearful. But God says, come into my presence. Come right in. Come to me. What a privilege for the people of God today. Let's pray.